0: Reacting to the world's best science, the Naked Scientists Newsflash.
1: It's the Naked Scientists, Chris Smith and Ben Valsler. Well, this week, some delicate stone arrowheads that date back. About 71,000 years have been unearthed in a part of South Africa. This is at Pinnacle Point, which is on South Africa's southern coast. It's been published in the journal Nature this week by uh, Cape Town archaeologist Kyle Brown and his colleagues. Why this is important, they have been excavating this site and they have identified these little tiny bladelets. They are worked pieces of flint which bear an uncanny resemblance to things which much more recently, have been found in association with wooden shafts and therefore probably were arrowheads. But the interesting thing is that they are so hard to make in terms of they got the right sort of stone... That's what you needed. They have been heat-treated in order to make the stone more workable, so they would have had to collect the stone from one place, take it to another place to heat-treat it, work the stone in the right way, then work the stone in such a way that it'll fit into another piece of worked material, like a piece of wood or bone, to slot into it, then bind the blade on. And their argument is that, given this was all going on 71,000 years ago, in order to pass on the skills of doing all of this and communicate this complicated manufacturing process, this isn't something that you could do without language. And they're making the point that this is an indirect evidence of very highly advanced language amongst people 71,000 years ago. Now, up until now, people thought we had had language in what we now regard as modern humans from about forty or 50,000 years ago. But this was based only on, again, indirect evidence, looking at symbolic evidence people painting things or drawing particular depictions or exhibiting certain behaviours. Now we've got, again, very tangible evidence with this highly, highly involved manufacturing process that's emerged from this site that they can date not just from 70,000 years ago, but there's 11,000 years of manufacture of these tools. So it's going on over a long period of time. And... The fact that the tools change subtly and evolve and become better as time goes on argues that the the technique is being passed on and explained. And it's interesting as well because I think there's another consequence of this. In the paper at the end, there's this beautiful line that says microlith-tipped projectile weapons, and these little bladelets are microliths, extended the effective range of lethal interpersonal violence. In other words, people attacking each other. They would have conferred substantive advantage on modern humans as they left Africa and encountered Neanderthals, who were equipped with only hand-cast spears. There's always been this question about why Neanderthals disappeared 24, 30,000 years ago or so, why they dwindled and, and then eventually completely disappeared. It looks like these people coming out of Africa for a very long time had been perfecting the art of making arrows and darts that they could fire. And the Neanderthals didn't have that, and they would probably have come second in the race.
2: It's a shame to see that evidence of very early communication and cooperation is also probably evidence of very early warfare.
1: It's all about warfare because people are fighting for resources. The other point is, it, it's um, also how you get your lunch. Because if you can use a bow and arrow against a very dangerous animal, you're less likely to. To come off badly and this enabled people to catch their lunch without having to take such a risk themselves personally and that meant that population survival was going to be much greater because you were going to lose fewer people owing to trauma and injury in catching your lunch
2: and presumably it would make things a bit more democratic because it's people who've got good aim as well as people who are just really fast whoever's
1: got, the whoever's got the biggest spear
2: and also this week researchers at the vice institute for biologically inspired engineering at harvard university have made a lung on a chip that is capable of modelling a human disease or human condition called pulmonary oedema. It consists of a polymer structure about the size of a USB stick and that contains a number of hollow channels. Two of those channels are separated by a very thin porous membrane and that's coated on one side with human lung cells and on the other side with cells from very small blood vessels known as capillaries. By passing air over the upper surface and blood-like medium across the underside, the chip can model the interactions that occur at the surface of the lung. Now, there are two other channels on the sides of the chip that can expand and contract. They pump in air or they vacuum it out in order to deform the interface to stretch it, to mimic breathing action. And now the new research that's been published in Science Translational Medicine demonstrates an abnormal function of a human lung. There's a drug that's used in cancer chemotherapy called interleukin-2 and it's known to have a serious side effect of causing pulmonary edema. That's where fluid can leak into the air spaces of the lungs. And if the lung on a chip is truly a model of a human lung, then we should expect to see the same sorts of leakiness across the lung tissue as a result of administering interleukin-2. And this is exactly what they saw. The lung and a chip experienced the leakiness, reduction in oxygen transport, and the clotting that you would see in real edema. The experiment actually went one step further and identified something entirely novel about edema as well, and that's the fact that the very act of breathing increases the leakiness over threefold. So it's a very serious and important thing they've discovered. Organs on a chip are thought to be useful for very, very high-throughput, replicable and easily controllable drug screening. And this could potentially do away with the need for animal studies, which can be costly. And in fact, only about 10% of drugs that initially start out on animals get to humans. So this will increase the rate at which we can identify new drugs. And now other organs, organ systems and other conditions should follow. And it's very likely to change the future of drug design and drug discovery.
1: Breath of fresh air. Thank you very much, Ben. Now, a major news story in the UK this month has been the discovery of ash dieback disease, a fungal infection that destroys ash trees, unfortunately. To find out more about this threat and whether or not we can control it before it spreads further, we're joined by Reading University plant pathologist Professor Michael Shaw and Cambridge University's Professor of Mathematical Biology, Chris Gilligan, who's also chairing the government's task force looking at this. Uh, We'll begin with Michael first. Hello, Michael. Hello. First of all, what is this disease that we're calling colloquially ash dieback?
0: It's a fungus which spreads by spores which form on fallen leaves and can infect leaves of a healthy tree and uh, then spread from there into the bark and the conductive tissues of the tree and cause wilting of shoots and eventually in, in small trees girdle the trunk and kill it. In older trees it kills shoots and maybe branches and weakens the tree so that it becomes liable to succumb to things which wouldn't normally be a lethal disease.
1: Is it just ash trees that are vulnerable to this particular infection or can it hop onto other trees and species too?
0: As far as we're aware, it affects a group of ash trees, particularly the common European elm, uh, which is the one we have, Um, a couple of other species, it seems to be less serious on Far Eastern elms. And in fact, the evidence at the moment is that it comes from the Far East. It seems to exist in a benign form, coexisting fairly happily with certain types of ash tree in Japan and presumably the wider Far
1: East. How do we think that something from the Far East took up residence in Britain? It's taken up
0: residence in Britain because sometime in the early 1990s, it took up residence somewhere in Eastern Europe, let's say in Poland, and it's been spreading from there as a spreading infection since that time. It was in Scandinavia in the mid-2000s. By 2009, I think 90% of Danish ash trees had some signs of infection. It's now in France, as far as the Massif Central. So, This is a big spreading wave of infection. How it got to Poland, we don't know.
1: We're hearing this number of 90% of ash trees are vulnerable. Is this a reflection on the fact that not all ash trees are made equally? Are there different subtypes of ash tree?
0: Well, no. It's more that um, ash trees are sexually reproducing, so they're quite variable. And in studying trees which appear to have been less badly affected in Denmark and in uh, Norway as well, it's been found that some trees appear to have survived because they're genuinely more resistant to the infection. And in looking at the progeny of those, looking at the seeds that arise from those trees, there are estimates of maybe 1% of the population will be able to survive.
1: So is the sort of long-term prospect then that we'll end up selecting out the trees that are vulnerable to this, but we'll breed a new strain of trees which are naturally resistant to it, so we just have to wait for one generation of ash trees and then we'll have trees that are not vulnerable so problem will go away?
0: Probably more than one generation because you'd have a sort of... Buttering epidemic, you'd have some trees which survived the first wave. Anyway, I think that is probably correct. The only catch there is to think what the generation time of an ash tree is, particularly to get to some of the more attractive landscape trees that may be over a century old. So we're talking for the next decade or two, we would see perhaps a third of the landscape and forest trees around us disappearing. Ash is an extremely common species and then gradually there would be a repopulation from resistant individuals. Of course the disease may evolve at the same time so we can't be absolutely sure what is going to happen.
1: And can it be treated if you've got a tree which has got it? Is there any way to save that tree, or or is this curtains? You've got to chop it down.
0: Trees don't have an adaptive immune system, so there's no way in which you can immunise a tree against this infection. The kinds of disease management that we might use on crop plants, which involve chemical fungicides, are not feasible or would have side effects worse than the disease itself if you used them in the open environment, because you would have to keep repeating them So a parallel kind of disease would be apple scab, which is often treated with five fungicide treatments in a year. And that would have to go on indefinitely. So there isn't really any way in which we can cure a tree. For an urban tree, a much-loved specimen tree, it may be possible, I'm sure people will be trying, injecting fungicide directly into the tree. But it will be expensive and unfeasible in the wider environment
1: intravenous treatment for a tree Uh, let's bring in Chris Gilligan who is uh, chairing the government's task force and this is a plant scientist at Cambridge University so Chris you've been down to advise the government what did you tell them? I've come into this
3: really as an epidemiologist and a mathematical modeler with some experience of developing models for a range of pathogens that might uh, come in and attack a range of species, including uh, trees, but also we've worked on bubonic plague in the past, for example, and used some similar methodology. Essentially, one wants to think, what are the three or four key questions that we might want to address in thinking about an invading pathogen? The first is you want to predict the spread. Secondly, you want to identify regions that are most at risk. Then you want to think about the effectiveness of management strategies, as as Michael has been referring to, and also telling us where to look in order to determine how the pathogen is spreading. And that's where we use mathematics.
1: What are you finding so far?
3: We're finding that Uh, this is a challenging uh, pathogen. It has spread, as Michael has said, rapidly, well over a period of 10 years, right across from Poland, uh, now into the UK. We're working very closely uh, with a range of government scientists to identify where uh, the sites of infection are, whether they're in mature trees or whether they're in sites in which young saplings have been introduced. And that distinction is very important, particularly in thinking about the methodis- mechanisms for spread and also the potential for control.
1: A lot of the newspapers have had things like, uh, they've said, now it's in mature trees, the horse has bolted, there's not a lot we can do. Is that, is that because if it's in mature trees, that's an indicator that it's out there in the wild and spreading and that all the control strategies of nurseries, you can do all that you like, but you're not going to stop something once it's out there in the, in the wild tree community.
3: Well, these are early days yet, and we're simply developing models and testing them, almost uh, working, uh, my group is working almost 24 hours a day at present to develop models as fast, and importantly, to test the models as rigorously as we can.
1: What about the distribution of ash trees around the country, though? Do you make assumptions about where all the ash trees are, and are they fairly homogeneously scattered across the country or are there hotspots, pockets if you like of where there are lots of ash trees and then not very many
3: this is one of the big challenges in dealing with an invading pathogen particularly of plants because although people might immediately think we know where all the ash trees are in fact we don't we know where a lot of them are excuse me and a lot of effort has been Uh, taken up over the last week in links uh, with the Forestry Commission to determine what are the best data that we possibly can get in order to obtain a map of where the ash trees are, and particularly the connectivity and breaks in uh, in the distribution of the ash trees. We now have, I think, the best possible map that could be got in the time.
1: When Foot and Mouth came to Britain about 11 years ago, that was controlled by removing all of the animals in infected areas, just literally blitzing them. It's almost creating a sort of firebreak, isn't it, and then sterilising an area. Will that strategy not work here? Could we not home in on areas where there are active infections in trees and remove all of the trees and therefore remove the source of infection? This is exactly why,
3: uh, as a mathematical modeler, I would say we need to have the mathematical models in order to be able to do the what-if scenarios to compare different types of control, we have very recently over the last few years, in fact, been looking at the spread of another uh, disease of trees called sudden oak death in the United States, where it's devastating larger areas of California, and the equivalent pathogen is ramorum disease of larch in this country, and we have used the models uh, to identify a culling strategy that is likely to have some effect in reducing the spread of disease. To reduce all of the disease, uh, to eradicate it, in fact, would be extremely difficult and extremely expensive.
1: So let's just uh, ask um, Michael to wrap this up for us. Michael, what do you think the long-term prospects are? Are we going to face a Britain with no ash trees? Because they make up, what, 40% of our natural woodland stock, don't they?
0: I don't think it's quite 40%, but it's a very large proportion. It will make a very big hole in the landscape. And I am pessimistic. I hope Chris's group will... um, do the sums but a wind-blown disease is a very difficult thing to control and so i am pessimistic that over the next decade or two we'll see a lot of tree deaths as i say in our children's lifetimes hopefully we will see some recovery to a more stable position but it's not
2: looking good
1: let's hope we do get on top of it thank you very much michael shaw from reading university and also chris gilligan from cambridge university
2: Well also this week we've seen evidence that fairy wrens who are a type of bird found in Australia hungry chicks of fairy wrens need to give a password in order to get food from their mother and it seems according to research published in Current Biology that they actually learn this password while they are still in the egg. Which is magnificent to think that... Password. it, It is a password. So it's a signature encoded in a special type of call that the mother does. It's called an incubation call. She only does it when she's on her own with her eggs. And in fact, we have a recording of a fairy wren incubation call so you can hear the sorts of thing they're doing. sounds like a bird song, to be honest. (laughs) Yes, it does just sound like a a bird song. But importantly, there are components within that that are unique to that mother. And it turns out that when the young are are then hatched, they do their own begging calls for food, and there are some of those components in that incubation song that are also found in the begging song. And the reason why these birds do this is in order to protect themselves from cuckoos, because cuckoos lay eggs in their nests, and then the female fairy wrens and the male ones will waste loads of resources bringing up a cuckoo. But the cuckoo's egg isn't in the nest for as long, and it seems that that means it gets less exposure to this initial call that they learn when in the egg, therefore it doesn't know the song, and it can't give the password, and the parents then will react differently to a nest that has a a bird that doesn't know the password. I'm surprised the cuckoo hasn't evolved, given that the birds have evolved to do this. Why hasn't the cuckoo? Well, that is mainly because the cuckoos have actually evolved to be able to take advantage of whatever the nest they're born in. So the the species of cuckoo doesn't necessarily lay its eggs in just that nest. So what cuckoos can do is learn the calls very quickly once they have been born, and they are evolved to be adaptable, but they're not evolved in order to pick up this song that early on. And it just gives the actual fairy wren chicks what they've called an advantage in the acoustical arms race that helps the fairy wrens protect themselves from cuckoldry.
1: What sort of scale of advantage did this research show or or would this research predict that the birds get
2: from having done this behaviour? Well, I don't think they really put numbers on it, but they could definitely show that a nest that couldn't give the password was more likely to be abandoned, was fed less often. And there were other behavioural adaptations So if the passwords didn't quite m- match up, then the parents spent more time looking around and being observant around the nests. Other behavioural adaptations were that if they had seen a cuckoo, then they'd be a bit more careful in the first place to sort of get that password. So it, it, it's hard to say exactly what difference it does make, but in this sort of thing where it really does mean the difference between passing on your genes and wasting your life bringing up somebody else's offspring. Every little helps. Certainly does.
1: The Naked Scientist News Flash. Reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.